I love this piece of music. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. We're here at uh, Rocky's Bacchus Studios with uh, a man of a bit of a legend with the Airborne Regiment, no. Marty, Martin Stop. Marty Spriggs. Hello, uh, Marty. <laughs> okay, I want to clear this up right now. I'm no legend in anything. Right? <laughs> he there's there's legendary stories told about the man. He's far too uh, too. Um, what, what what would you use? What word would you use? More short. Yeah. Okay, we'll go with short. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So your last unit was the Airborne Regiment, was it not? Uh, it was actually. I went to the Airborne in '93, uh, and I was there till the end. Uh, saw the Airborne through like the dismemberment and into uh, what we called the Airborne Holding Unit, and then uh, yeah. One Canadian airborne holding unit, I think, at the point. I don't remember, dude. Sorry. There are good five names at least. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Whatever it was. So, so would you say then that you are uh, singularly responsible for the demise of the airborne regiment? No, but I know who is. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Not sitting anywhere around you. <laughs> not at this table. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that's not really a fair question for Marty. <laughs> he was too drunk most of the time to actually cause that kind of shit. Exactly. Ah, <laughs> oh, shite. <laughs> so, so you got yourself exited out of the army, the military. After how many years? Uh, well, I served for fifteen. Uh, yeah, eighty-one to ninety-six. Eighty-one to ninety-six. Yes, back in the day, back back during what's known as like the liberal dark years, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely the dark years of the 90s. Yeah. Although, after we got disbanded, were you in Jamaica? Did you come to Jamaica with us? No. So, I, uh, well, I got out. So, I was in, I, I think, like, I, I'm i not even sure. I think I went from the airborne holding unit to the street. But I may have gone back to 1RCR for a week or two. Like, I, I just can't remember. And it really doesn't matter. But, yeah. So, the airborne... Uh, you know, it took me a long time to get there. Uh, I went there with like 12 years uh, in the army. I was a sergeant at, uh, you know, the time, which did, didn't be the usual way that you went yeah. to the airborne. Um, uh, loved my time there. I, I mean, the people were just amazing, right? In what way? Well, uh, so motivated, so driven, experts at uh, you know what they did and uh, this was post you know Somalia uh, new commanding officer uh, you know Peter Kenwood uh, fantastic leader the troops adored him uh, he uh, the easiest way to see to, to say what Peter did is to say that uh, like he got rid of elements that were in the airborne that yeah. that, that had to go they had no place there and and uh, yeah and it was on the up and up, and then all of a sudden it wasn't. So yeah, yeah. it was. I loved it, it. It was. It was hard to go through those. Uh, those because I wasn't with the regiment in the early days or anything sure. like that. Yeah, but it was. It was quite the experience to watch it sort of dissolve, and you be part of it, and and how it affected different guys. Yeah. How it affected yourself. Yeah, I mean, guys just said fuck it and yeah. quit on the spot. They <laughs> went and got their papers filled. Sure. And it was just a gut wrenching, uh, yeah, experience. experience. Yeah, yeah. So uh, after that, yeah, what? How did you calm down? Cool. So um, uh, I got out, and, and this is in '96. Uh, now I have to back up a bit. So I was injured. I 
uh, I fractured my L1 jumping. Um, I, I, I seriously can't remember, Steve. I think it was either 94 or 95. I think it was the winter, February 95. Uh, I fractured my back uh, in a parachuting accident. Uh, I, I screwed up. I landed wrong. Um, kind of no excuse, but yeah. And then, heard like a son of a bitch. Yeah, I did. So it took me about a year to recover, you know, physically. And at the end of the year, I still wasn't there. Uh, I was in the airborne, uh, peep, you know, and I kind of promised myself when I was a young, a young soldier back in one RCR London that I'd never become one of those cranky old fucks, right? That, that <laughs> if something ever happened to me that I couldn't soldier, I just, you know, move on. So I made a decision. Uh, I got out of the army, um, and, uh, not a lot of use for, you know, combat armed soldiers on, you know, Civvy Street back then and kind of still isn't, but nobody would. more opportunities nowadays. But then it was, you know, policeman, security guard, whatever. Those two roles didn't interest me. Um, but I just come out. So I, I was in um, I was in the first roto in Yugoslavia in 93. Right. Yep. yep. Um so I had done a little bit of, you know, combat first aid there, uh, and I was actually good at it, or I, I thought I, I thought I was good at it. So I applied for school, um, you know, did some research, SATE, Southern Alberta Institute of, you know, Technology, was had actually one of the leading EMT programs back then. I enrolled. I was two year program. Yeah, no, no. So th- th- this was EMT. So this was like nine months or something, right? Okay. So it's it's the second strung up. So first is e- or was back then. So you know, first was EMR, um, emergency medical responder, which is like a two week thing, a three week thing, yep. a- and then EMT was the second, you know, level, and then you had to go to school for uh, to become a paramedic for two years after the EMT. Yeah. However, uh, I so when I went through my EMT training, um, you had to do like a half a dozen shifts in the ER. And I got into the ER and I saw what uh, an ER nurse could do. And I thought, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. I, that's what I want to do, you know, moving forward. There was nothing like it, just to interrupt you, because I did my PA course and everywhere you went, you learn quickly who the good nurses are. Well, sure, uh, sure. And, nurses are incredible. Yeah, and I, I think what attracted me to the ER nurse uh, area was they had a certain amount of autonomy. Um, right. It, it was all a team, but they could use their you know critical thinking skills, and there was a whack of work to done to do even before an ER patient you know sees you know the doctor. So that that appealed to me. So anyway. I applied as an adult student. I'm like 32 or 33 now. Uh, applied to Lethbridge College, got in. Um, so this is fall of 97. Went to school, got out in January 2000 uh, with a nursing diploma. And that led to a, almost a 20-year career in healthcare for me. So what what do you do for healthcare? Well, well uh, what not what you do for it, but... So how do you I, practice? I, I started as an RN in the ER. 
Um, this is the Rocky View. Uh, and I'm era. sorry if, if I missed this in the first part, but what drove you to become a nurse? Oh, what you was know her? what? So this is, to be honest... That'd be nice. To be brutally honest, it, it was, you know, helping people was kind of secondary or or tertiary even. To me, it, it was just a cool job, yeah. right? So to be brutally on, to be brutally honest to you, I there was no illusions of wanting to save the world or you know or being you Fixing know the, the best healthcare human. system overnight or something. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it just appealed to me as is a cool job, and yeah. I. You know, people say, oh, you've done such great things. And it's like, well, perhaps. But, you know, I think people need, for me, people need to take a step back and look at motivation. I wasn't motivated by wanting to save the world or anything <laughs> like that. It just, it looked like a cool job, yep. dude. You know? Yep. Yeah. Well, no, good question. Fair question. <laughs> that, that seemed like a logical question. Well, I, my own recollection of uh, of getting getting the job with the, the machine was going into Calgary and talking to recruiters and, and uh, they were always well put together and they were so slick, these guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the way that he, he, he sells you. I wanted to go in and I was uh, asking for infantry, armor and artillery. That's yeah. all I knew. Yeah. I watched a couple of war movies, right? Yeah. And he said, well, you've done, done your testing. You know, your comprehension skills are not bad. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, how'd you like to be a signaler? I thought, fuck that thing it looks heavy and it keeps hitting you in the head <laughs> and he's the first one that gets shot every time he, he, uh, he uh, is out. So I said, no, nah, that doesn't really agree to me. He said, how about medic? And that's where it all fucking yeah. started. Yeah, I guess. It, it, exactly. So and what a great journey it's been. Well, sure. So I then worked the next five years. Um, I w worked full time. So I have to step back a bit once once I started uh, in my second or perhaps third year of college, um, I got hired on by the city of Calgary EMS. Now, back then, like the cities ran it, not like the provincial healthcare system that it is now. So it was a, a smaller organization. Yeah. And I got hired on basically because I was an RN, right? Or sorry, an RN in training. Okay. So once I finished school, uh, I was already working for EMS in, you know, Calgary. Uh, and I got a job at Rocky View Emerge uh, in, you know, Calgary, one of the three or f now four ERs there. And Calgary is massive now. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I did, I worked part time as an RN. So full time on the street with EMS, part time on, uh, you know, days off in the ER. And yeah, and I did that for about five years and just loved it. Great experience. You know, um, well, it's the ER, so there's every every day's different, every night shift's different, and you get what what bugs you most about work in ER? Bugs me most. Oh well, the just the whiners that 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 <laughs> should be seeing their family doctor or have seen their family doctor. Yeah, and then yeah. think that they know better, and then come yeah. to the ER, yeah. and it's like, what are you doing? Why Why am I sitting yeah. here for five hours? Yeah. Uh, your uh, so, kids running around in the alley yeah. aisle looking pretty fucking happy. <laughs> I well, when I worked triage and I did like working triage, you know, I had no no problem um, um, questioning yeah. people's decisions to come to the ER. Yeah. It's like seriously, you you've come to the ER with that. Come on, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I wasn't popular with 
the nursing manager for that, but but um, well, I you should I'm, have been. Yeah, I think I was popular with the staff. <laughs> yeah, but it's like no, I'm not letting you see a physician. It's abuse of the yeah. abuse of the system. Go it's got to stop and, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Go home and try cough mixture. You have a cold. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I vote for you to fucking take off with that because that's bullshit. I, and and it. And it just bugs you because yeah. these people have been through the system many times before, yeah. you know, bringing in their kid with a pee stuffed up its nose yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And they should know by now, sure. don't come to emerge unless it's emerge. Yeah. I, you know? I didn't mind treating the so-called, you know, frequent flyers because yeah. there was usually mental health problems there, right? True. But you also, if you don't look after that physical part, you're gonna miss the one time that exactly, you exactly. should have paid attention. Right, right, yeah. And that, and those, those were good lessons. You know, I, I, I had a fantastic paramedic preceptor. So when I, when I did my my final practicum with EMS, and now we're long time friends. I yeah. mean, he's just a great guy. His big thing to me was for me to learn who's sick and who's not sick. Yep. Right. Yep. And that was it. Yep. And that was it. Like, you know, pathophysiology came second and all that stuff. Just tell me if this guy is sick yep. and if he's got to go to the hospital. Yep. And that, that stuck through me through well, that's how years you, of healthcare. You honed that. You exactly. take that to yeah. the next level. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You yeah. get pretty good at it. Yeah. You were you good with working the kids? Kids, you know, kids were not my, my thing. So until I went to Africa. Right. Okay. And then kids, you know, I taught him the wheel one boy song. So if you heard that, well, you were in Africa, that was me, you know, maternal child. So I came out of the ER and the, and went into the ICU for like a year and a half. Then I quit that job and I went up North in the Arctic and I worked outpost nursing up in the Arctic yep. for three years. And did then you travel the villages or did you have them travel to, to towns? Yeah. So I mainly worked in the Eastern Arctic. So all over, all over, you know, Baffin Island. Okay. Yeah. yeah. From North to South to East to West Pond Inlet. Like I probably worked 80% of the communities up there. Kimmeru, you know, Kimmeru well, Kajak, a few Pangatun. of those people have my sutures in them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I hope they're still not in them. Yeah. You know. well, I hope if they're not cat they're not there. Yeah. Yeah. But then, um, yeah, then I came back to Calgary. I worked public health. Uh, I worked in TB for a year. Uh, and then I fell into, like, the best healthcare job that probably I ever had out, outside, like, the next step. But All right. It was... What was it? It was emergency management for healthcare. So... It took Keska. Well, it, it took all my army skills, uh, writing reports, writing exercises, planning exercises, planning operations, and, and which that wasn't a problem for you. No, because I had worked in int for yeah. years yeah. in in three RCR in the airborne, even one RCR. I think I worked in, or I got qualified back then, basic, or maybe you got some extras or something. Yeah, you got sent there. But so I had worked, especially the airborne, you know, working side by side with, you know, Colonel Kenward for, for almost three years as his, uh, in, you know, sergeant. We didn't have an IO for a buddy for, I don't know, quite some time. I can't remember now. So planning. You didn't have a what for quite some time? An IO, an int officer, right? Sorry. Sorry, dude. So, <laughs> um, so all my, all those skills that I learned in the army, I could turn around and actually use in healthcare. And 
it was kind of funny because I ran exercises like we ran. ran uh, so what emergency management does in healthcare is it helps healthcare. It teaches healthcare how to deal with big things that are outside the normal scope, yep. like uh, plane crashes, large mass casualty casualty events. So when I would run an exercise, I do up an exercise um, plan, very similar to well, almost a copy of what we used to do in the army. And you know, the healthcare, all the all the upper echelon of healthcare just love this. And it's like I'm thinking, yeah, any good master corporal could do yeah. this, you know. Yeah. But uh, they ate that up. And um, yeah, so that was kind of like my first gig. And then I... Your I, first gig at well, what? Well, in healthcare, in, in emergency management, like was teaching hospitals how to deal with mass right. casualty yeah. incidents. Then they had me do a, uh, a program where I, where I had to research it. I, I, I had to write it. Uh, I ended up implementing it and, and actually what it was, it was the CBRN, uh, response yep. in a hospital. And it was really cool to do because it, it took me five years. Um, it didn't cost a lot. It was like $2.4 million. So were you over? No, no, I was under, right? And it took you how long? Five years. Wow. So... At the time, I went back to school, got a master's degree in in disaster and 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 emergency management. I didn't even know that that was a thing, but yeah. that's a thing. So that really helped me, right? Yeah. Go forward and uh, go forward, you know, <laughs> with this program. And now it's mainstay in 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 all 114 ERs and urgent care centers in in uh, you know the province. So nice, yeah, very cool, yeah, yeah. So. You decided to uh, get out, get out, and get some fresh air. Well, because you seem to have switched jobs. So, the, so <laughs> like drastically. I had just finished, Steve. I mean, it, it is kind of funny because because I had just finished rolling this program out to the province. You know, five years worth of work, and there wasn't anything coming down the pipe that kind of interests me, right? Anyway, one day I was sitting in my cubicle. And the phone rang, and it was a dude that I met when I was uh, when I when I was taking my masters, and he said, "Hey, Spriggsy, um, I'm in South Sudan. Uh, I'm 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 running a refugee camp. Do you want to come and run primary health for Who me?" Who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. Really? So I thought about it for five seconds. Yep. And I said, "Sure." And then, were you married at the time? No, okay. no, that helped. Yeah. So I quit the best paying job with the best benefits, with the best boss, with the best hours, with the best everything to go work in Africa and for, you know, peanuts for the next five years. And what do you think of that? Oh, man. I mean, it was fantastic. It's a fucking cat's ass. That, uh, that, the dog's bollocks, as the Brits would say. I don't yeah. know what they say in Africa, but that would be an awesome job. So awesome. There was a little bit of foresight here. So after... <laughs> After I graduated from my master's in 2011, um, I went to uh, the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in England. Okay, and uh, I, I think we were supposed to go there just at one point. Oh yeah, yeah, it's fantastic school. So I got a postgrad diploma in tropical nursing. That so that plus my master's. Uh, 
open the doors for me. Do you me. speak French or anything? No. No, dude. I don't, right? I speak better Arabic now. Than Fuck, you got, you got lucky in a few spots. Oh, uh, yeah. You yeah. know? So, but it wasn't for a Canadian well, group, right? Yeah. Right? It, it was for an American NGO. So, you know, French language was not an issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I arrived in uh, Africa, you know, Sudan, which is the world's youngest country and, and still... Is it still considered a country at the moment? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they had they they had their challenges, but I got there in the... In the <laughs> yes, f- they did. In the and f- do. Yeah. In the fall, this is now 2013, uh, I did four months running primary health. I learned a lot. Um, but I was also able to, to, uh, fall back on the, on the education. I mean, that was key, right? Let's, let's skip over the education a bit and get to some of the, like, what did you see in South Sudan? What? So it was a refugee camp. Get the sexier stuff out of you. So these poor people, uh, came out of, uh, you know, Sudan, you know, Al-Bashir, not a nice man, carpet or not carpet bombing, you know, but barrel bombing these people. And they all fled south into, yeah. you know, South Sudan. Supposedly so, a safer area. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, 2013, uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, not until the following year that things really went to hell. Rent, yeah, went a bit sideways. Pear shaped. But um, uh, it, it was so the primary. So I supervised uh, three or four. Uh, clinical officers, they were called. And they were like quasi-nurse practitioners, right? Um, All were South Sudanese. um, And there were um, a couple couple Rwandans, a couple Kenyans. So what I find really interesting is that uh, some of the more progressive nations in Africa had uh, matured. I'm I'm, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying that word. Um, Are we talking like the Belgians, the, well, no, the like, Germans? But no. So I'm talking <laughs> about the Kenyans, about Rwandans, uh, countries that had grown up receiving uh, aid from NGOs. Sucking on the tit for their entire life. Well, but, but they had. But the universities there had created programs that were NGO geared, right? Yep. So we got some incredibly good people out of Kenya and Rwanda and Uganda. Those were kind of like the big three that were really good at, you know, what they did. So they were really good nurses. They were good clinical officers. They were good. They were really good uh, logs people. They were all volunteers? Oh, no. Oh, no. This is paid. Okay. Right. But the NGOs, by and large, paid a little bit more than they would in their African country. Right now, I didn't get paid well, but people that go to Africa for NGO work aren't looking to get rich. They're just either going there because they want to save the world, or they're like me, just wanting to go there and have a get a little adrenaline up. Yeah, to to my detriment ultimately, but yeah. Well, ultimately, ultimately, I mean, you take you take your chances. You know, you Mm. put your money down, takes your chances, kind of thing. Yeah, we end up with fuck. Yeah, sometimes you end up with the fucking. uh, the uh, the bear eating you, and sometimes you end up with eating the bear. <laughs> yeah. So, so at, right. the, at, at, at the end of 2013, uh, the NGO that I was working with came back, and um, violence now, ethnic violence had 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 sprung up in 
South Sudan in January. No, I think it was around Christmas time. And who who are the two main? Uh, oh, dude. So, I don't recall. So there was there was two factions, and, and one was one was led um, by the prime minister, and then the other one was re, was led kind of uh, by the vice prime minister. Back who there. was just simply wanting to walk into the president's job. I yeah, and and so when they signed the peace agreement back in, uh, I think it was two thousand nine. Don't quote me. You know they they brought the warring factions together, and it's just tribal, yeah. right? Um, and they f- tribal. Well, and they formed a government out of both sides. About uh, the rebel leader was a guy named Martin Bashir, I think. And Sounds like a good Canadian lad. Yeah, it does. Oh. I uh, wasn't a good Canadian lad whatsoever. But uh, yeah, so when ethnic violence kind of erupted again in in the winter of 2013 14. The NGO came back to me and asked me to leave, lead an emergency team into uh, Malakal, uh, you know, South Sudan. So you have no weapons, of course. Oh, no, dude. No, no. We're the good guys. We, yeah. Now, this particular mission was kind of unique. What happened up there was uh, 30,000 people, and you can't call them refugees officially because they didn't cross an international border. Okay. They're called IDPs, internally Indis- displaced people. Yeah. Right. So 30,000 people went rushing through the gates of a UN base up just outside of, you know, Malakal. Yeah. So the UN uh, is not the same organization that was when we served in the UN 20, 30 years well, ago. Well, I certainly hope not because it was shit then. Has it improved? Well, no, it's <laughs> gone downhill. So, oh. but... What it was good, though, Steve, I mean, and, and again, this is going to sound really bad, but I think people <laughs> need to t- take it in, you know, context. So a lot of the UN stuff that we did back in the 80s, you know, 90s was Western armies with professional people. Now, uh, most of the UN operations, you know, since Black Hawk Down and all that, most yeah. of most of the Western countries kind of pulled out of UN peacekeeping for the various well, reasons. When was the last peace, actual peacemaking? Um, uh, Cyprus, I guess, was the last. Well, Where, true, truly peacekeeping, sure. Yeah, you know? but I mean, what yeah. people were calling peacekeeping is by no means peacekeeping. Yeah. I mean, you went to Bosnia in the early the, days yeah. as a peacekeeper. Yeah. Where the fuck did you keep the peace? Well, you know? not you personally. Right. <laughs> there was peace to keep in, in, in like the. Um, where the war was over in Croatia, but but what, once the Bosnian war broke out, uh, th- there was no longer peace yeah. to keep. Yeah, that was yeah, it was shite. Anyway, oh, speaking. Wait a second. You mentioned um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned something about four. Did you hear about the kid in Toronto? You might not have. You've been traveling around. So, born last two two three days, um, was born without uh, eyelids. So it's. I don't know what the fuck they did, covered it with damp, uh, yeah. damp cloths or something. But what they did do was take the kid's foreskin, they circumcised the kid. <laughs> yeah. And they they, uh, they flayed it, but whatever they do, yeah. flayed it and, yeah. and uh, put it to, all together. And uh, the kid now has eye, eyeballs, that's or ingenious. I mean, blinking. Like, that, fuck. That's ingenious. What if the color matches? Are you, yeah. is it kinda, you'd have to worry about that. But so... Um, Mom was quite worried that the doc that the the kid was going to be cockeyed, but the doctor said, 
think of all the foresight the foresight he'll have. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Yeah, you thought that was gonna be. I serious. hope your audience doesn't come on here for comedy because that just sucks. Dude. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> no, I. You you that. were in there. The hook was there. <laughs> I was. Oh, you looked kind of concerned by for the job. <laughs> yeah. They probably could do something like that. Although there's a lot of muscles and shit. You have to move around. <laughs> Fuck. So, you know, you asked about what type of stuff that, you know, we did. Uh, so a lot of NGO care, especially in, um, in you know, refugee camps is yeah. um, maternal child health. I mean, that's, yeah. that's and ed- 75%. Maternal education, period. Yeah. So it's, it's really easing... W- it's really interesting what you learn, uh, you know, doing five years of that. And, yep. and I've learned, you know, basically men are scum and it's a better world if, yep. you know, less men are in it. And the more we educate girls in, you know, the developing world, the better, the better outcome we're going to have. Well, first of all, one educated female in a town or a village is yeah. going to pretty much tell every other woman how to prevent a child yeah. or, you know, how, how to do this or whatever. Right. I mean, the income of the village goes up. Um, the health of the village goes up. Like, yeah. educate women. And, and I mean, we, and we educate women. And so, that's science. I yeah. mean, it's, it's been proven yeah. time after time after time. Study after study. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it kind of went wrong here where we taught our women and it became kind of uppity. But <laughs> other, other than that, that was Steve saying that, not Martin. <laughs> I just, yeah, definitely educating women is the way to go. No matter what yeah, country, yeah. no matter what uh, yeah. um, socioeconomic. Yeah. Well, especially the lower ones, right? I mean, when you educate a girl from a poor community, give her the tools that she needs to be come a leader in that community you're doing an amazing thing so my job was to keep infants alive long enough that they become young young girls even young men you know don't get me wrong but but um uh there are fantastic things that aid org organizations are now doing with you know uh, what do they call it micro loans macro loans so Oh, yes, for small businesses. Right. So they give women, and it's only to women because men will just drink whatever they get, right? But they give women, yeah, cheers. Um, They give women enough money to get something going. And and again, it's very clear, like the literature, it's very clear the women pay these loans back in record time yep. and they're off to the races with yep. a resource i mean it's just so cool to see and and they've now learned from the basics of setting up a small yeah. market stall to yeah. becoming a ceo exactly they, they have the understanding now that there's shit that can happen yeah. for them you know and and, and but they have to kill all their husbands because yeah. the majority yeah. of the husbands as you say are just at home and yeah yeah right so um you know, a lot of people will probably hear this and say, oh, Spriggs, you're, you know, bleeding heart liberal, yeah. fucking leftist, whatever. But here's, I mean, here's the thing. People that are anti-immigration should be pro-foreign aid, right? Yeah. Like, and, and that's, you know, not the case. They want, people want to have it, you know, both ways. They don't want to send funds to 
you know, the developed world, and then they don't want people to come in from there right. to, you know, that country. I mean, that just doesn't work. But here's the thing. If you're anti-immigration, then you should be pro-foreign aid because the more aid that goes into these developing countries... And develop them. Well, develop them finally, right? And and we'll keep... Hopefully in a political uh, yeah, yeah. state of mind you like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but that does... I mean, I've seen that happen, Steve, right? I, I've watched it happen. Well, of course. I mean, look at, look at uh, any government head in the Middle East mm-hmm. and who... who uh, has them has them as their their allies i mean yeah yeah is it important where was i going with that yeah i'm not sure <laughs> you i'm pretty sure you had a rabbit hole there for that like fuck um, anyway just you one, know something one for, rescue something for, for you know some people to think about it but my five years in africa i i relied heavily on a couple principles that i'd learned uh through school right one was uh, sustain, you know, sustainability. Everything that you do there must be able to keep going when you yep. leave, right? And the that's guy key. that's looking after the well needs, needs to, to keep understand looking the after the well yep. once I'm gone, right? So, I, I mean, I'm very proud of the work that I did there because I've, I've, I've learned throughout the years that, that some of those things that I did are still in play now. So, that's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and it's not rocket science. I'm not the smartest spark plug that's in the engine block, you know. Um, <laughs> the but, sparkiest spark plug? I don't know. Uh, you know, but it, it's just simple. So the World Health Organization. It seems simple. Why yeah. isn't it happening? Well, because it is happening. Uh, and I... Perhaps it's not happening on the scale that, you know, we need to to do things, you know, faster. And it does take time. Like, it takes a generation to raise and and educate a people, yep. right? I mean, it, it probably takes a couple. And I'm not an educates, I'm not an educational specialist by any sense. All I know is what I saw and what I saw work, right? Um, but for healthcare... The World Health Organization has some fantastic protocols that keep women and children alive in, you know, the developing world. So what I did is I implemented them. And, and that's it. Quite simple. So hold that there, Marty. Okay. Um, we're here with Marty Spriggs at uh, Rock is Bacchus. And uh, we're kind of, we're, we're winging it on what we're talking about. But uh, this is part two of... This, sorry, this is part one of unknown parts. <laughs> stay, stay with us. Cheers. <laughs>